You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Welcome again to Celebration Sunday. I would love for you to turn in your, in your Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel into the sixth chapter. I want to talk about the Lord's Prayer briefly, uh, and I want to talk about it in light of a couple things. One, uh, refresh weekend was this weekend. Raise your hand if you were a part of that. Praise God, good to see you back here. Uh, I don't have time to unpack all of that, but really we set out a vision, a clarified vision, where as a church we want to be about believing, belonging, training, and sending. And so again, a lot more to come there. But one of the things at the very end that Shay talked about was, hey, this is just a vision unless we pray. And so I thought in light of Celebration Sunday, why don't we talk a little bit about prayer? And I think the best place to go in prayer, in the Bible, is when Jesus, God himself, actually prayed for us as a model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, this, these words are probably the most uh, spoken words in human history, the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is crazy to think about that. But in this passage, we are going to see a treasure. I mean, I, I'm only going to scratch the surface, a treasure of how we can approach God in prayer. And so speaking of prayer, let me pray, and then we'll read through the passage, walk through the passage together. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word, and I pray that uh, by uh, seeing your word and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we would uh, see you rightly and understand your desire for us to pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let me read the prayer, and then we'll walk through it. Our Father in heaven, I'm starting in verse nine. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. This is God's word. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Those, that, that brief little part of this brief little prayer absolutely changes the most significant question, human existence, and that is our relationship with God. What do I mean? I mean several things. One, to call God Father directly is nothing you'll find in the Old Testament. There are allusions to God as Father, that's alluded to, but there's never, ever a direct address until Jesus comes and he says, Father. He calls him Father in heaven. He uses a very personal and intimate name. But here's something else that's crazy that happens in this text. He doesn't say, my Father. What does he say? He says, our Father. And so in this passage itself, you already see the gospel at work. You already see the perfect Son of God who's come to live as a substitute and a sacrifice to lay down his life for the sake of bringing people into the community of God. And the gift of this prayer already, already is his shared inheritance. That he comes and he makes his direct address to God, the most personal language it's ever been. He doesn't claim it for himself, although it's rightfully his. He says it's ours. And then he addresses him as father. Which if you get to know anybody's story, at, anybody, at any kind of soul level, their relationship with their father has a ton to do about their life. 
either to their glory or to their hardship. And you and I live in a world where everything, just about everything we do is transactional. You know this. At least we feel the temptation. Like, hey, like in, in our workplaces, like, hey, I, I'm, I'm here to basically do everything you need at this high level so that I can get the outcome that I want. It's transactional. If I do this, I get this. If I don't do this, I don't get this. Our relationships are transactional. You know, will you, if, if I can invest in you to the degree that you'll reciprocate kindness back to me, then maybe I can be in your, like this, this temptation towards a transactional way of life is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Sorry for the SAT word, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We approach things transactionally. If I can do the work, if I can be good enough, if I can be liked enough, our sister just said it, if I can strive enough, then I'll get what I want. And what Jesus gives us in this model prayer is what? The very first part. He hasn't even asked for anything yet. Father. Father. Because of the gospel, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we approach him as dad. And we don't approach him based on any goodness in ourselves. We approach approach him because he loves us. And if you have a smidgen uh, in your heart of what it's like to be a father, you'll know that the longing in his heart for you is real. He loves you. And his relationship is not based on what you bring him or the good you do for him or the good you've done for him or the shame you feel by not doing good for him. He says, I'm your dad and I love you. And I love you because of what Jesus has already done on your behalf. And so you get to call me father and you get to embrace me as dad, as perfect dad, who will do nothing but love you eternally for the rest of your life, who sees the worst in you and loves you, who knows the best of you and loves you. He loves us and we approach him as father. And if that's just categorically hard for you to understand, brothers and sisters, you got to get underneath that because everything about your life and everything about this prayer is conditioned, it's predicated on on the fact that we get to approach him freely because of Jesus by grace. Unmerited favor is the name of the game. That is our relationship with him, not to get not, not, to, not to get something from him, but to experience the grace of his presence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What in the world does that mean? Okay, here's the hard part of hallowed or hallowed, you might want to say it that way. It's lost in our vernacular, okay? I don't think any of us today are going to say there are a few hallowed items at Central Market that I need to pick up on the way home in order to make dinner tonight. If you do, I'd love to meet you. You sound like an interesting person, but (laughs) hallowed means holy. It means reverent. It really, it means holy. It means set apart. That's what hallowed means. Hallowed be your name. 
That's the prayer. Hallowed be your name. And so you go, okay, well, is that kind of weird? Because isn't he already hallowed? Isn't he already holy? Isn't he already? Yes, of course he is. And so the reason that Jesus is teaching us to pray this is not that he isn't holy. It's that we are going to make, we're going to have a temptation to make something else in our life most hallowed. That's our primary struggle is you're going to make something or someone in your life the most hallowed thing, the most holy thing, the most revered thing. And so this is a tuning prayer for us to pray constantly to say, may your name be holy. It already is. Your light's already shining brightly, but I can close my eyes to it and not hallow your name. That's our great temptation. And so you're praying this daily to go, hallowed be your name. Because listen, the stuff that's going to come, the kingdom and the will that we want is going to directly correlate to what we hallow in our lives. And if you want to know what you hallow the most, go two places, your daydreams and your nightmares. What you think about the most and what you're terrified of. That's what you are hallowing in your life. And so the tuning prayer here is to say, hallowed be your name. Why? Because you're infinitely good. You are the best thing. You are the most important thought in history. You are God. And everything good and right flows from you. And so may I hallow your name and not something that you have created. Hallowed be your name. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? It means that Christ is already reigning as king of the universe. And so because of that, because of his resurrection, every square inch of earth, he has rightful claim for his gospel to have full effect. And it will. One day, it will. One day. And it means that the kingdom has the right towards every square inch of our heart, of our thoughts, of our motives, of our ideals, everything. And God is reigning supremely in heaven. And so the prayer is your kingdom come here on earth. May every square inch of this place look like the kingdom in heaven and the kingdom that is to come. You take full reign of this place. And here's, here's what we know. The king in heaven, so if you read Revelation, it talks about the king, uh, those especially who have endured the, the tribulation are worshiping the king in heaven and he's on the throne and this is Christ as he is. And this is what Revelation says. His presence is their shelter. But that's not just a future glory. That's a future fulfilled glory. But what that means is that King Jesus's presence is your present shelter. And so if you have, which I know you do because I do, if you have areas of your life for King Jesus to heal, anxieties and shame and things that you don't want anybody to, that, that, that God, that your kingdom come is actually a healing prayer for that light to shine into the darkest places of your life so that you can experience healing now. But that's not just prayers for now. That's prayers, it's not just us. Don't make Christianity so individualistic. That's just modeling the therapy culture of today. It's not just our religion, for lack of a better word. It's for everybody and everything. And it's saying, may the gospel come to bear in everything that I do, in the way that I neighbor, in the way that I work, in the way that I manage, in the way that I raise my children. May the kingdom of God, may the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ be manifest in everything that I do. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. That's the second part. And what in the world does that mean? That is a terrifying prayer. Your will be done. Terrifying. 
absolutely assaults control freaks like me. Your will be done. Do you know how yielding, do you know how subordinate that is to actually tell God, your will be done? Whatever this thing is that's awful and terrible that I don't want to happen, your will be done. Because again, he's father. Think about Abraham and Isaac. He has called us into trusting relationships. Think about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's called us into trusting relationships. And he's saying, whatever has to happen for you to get the most glory, may it be done. This is passed through your hands. There's good that will come from it. I will rejoice and be glad. You will withhold no good thing from me. Your will be done. I am opening my hands and I'm, I'm, I'm going to actively stop fighting with you to control everything. I'm going to be honest with you about how hard it is, which the Psalms invite us to do, but I'm going to trust you. And what it also means is that when God's revealed will is clear and we're outside of it, that's called the wilderness. That's called a lack of shelter. That's called a lack of protection. So if your work relationships or your emotional relationships or your romantic relationships are abjectly in opposition to God's will, then this is a correcting prayer to go, I'm going to get back into the fold of what God says looks like flourishing so that I don't have to experience the humiliation before the humility. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, these are not just words we can pray, but patterns that we can pray. These are thoughts and concepts that can help guide our prayers. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Give us this day our daily bread. What is daily bread? It's daily bread. It's bread for which we should be grateful. And I'm grateful, and I know you are too, for daily bread. Solomon prays, give me poverty nor riches. So one side of that is, I don't want to be broke, right? I don't want my car to decline at H-E-B, you know? I, I love that, you know, we have food for tomorrow. Praise God, that's his gift. Um, and some of us feel that on that side, like real financial, like real financial struggle, especially in this crazy thing that's happening in Dallas where every time you go to Chick-fil-A, it's more expensive, but... But that's just one part of it. I feel like the other part of it, probably our modern temptation, looks more like, um, you know, I'm good with the daily bread, but I'm kind of thinking about like bread for the next few decades. I'm kind of thinking about like bread in my 60s, you know? Trying And, and uh, you gotta be careful with that because the Bible talks a lot about wisdom and retirement and, you know, being a good steward and investing. So yes and amen to that. But I think part of the reason why our work culture is so consuming is that we're not just thinking about today's bread. We're thinking about like years and years and years and years and years of bread to come. And what that's going to do is two things. It's going to make us far more anxiety filled and we're not going to be able to see people. That's what happens when you're so consumed with bread for decades to come, you're going to miss people because you're taking on burdens that are not yours to carry. You're gonna miss the ministry of Christ around you, the people that he's proactively called you to love. You're gonna miss that. 
by being consumed with tomorrow and, and you know, years and years and years to come's bread. But daily bread is a good thing. God's provision is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it's not just your bread, it's our bread. It's everybody's bread. Martin Luther made the comment that thriving economies are actually a picture of the way that everybody gets their bread. And so it's a beautiful way that our capitalistic society helps us think about everybody else, provision for the whole community, which is beautiful to think about that. It's interesting, the three concepts here, bread, humility to forgive our sins, and then the forgiveness of others are the three things that actually break down in broken societies. What I mean by that is when societies, when communities lack bread, when they lack humility, and when they lack forgiveness, they don't flourish ever. There's not one example of a society that lacks bread, humility, and forgiveness that flourishes, not one. But when we think about God's kingdom around daily bread for us, gratitude, and then bread for other people, not just us, when we think about living lives of humility and when we think about forgiving people actively, that those are actually the, 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 the interworkings, the foundation of flourishing societies, which means Jesus Christ himself, that these are God's word. Okay, this is not my interpretation. From the mouth of God by the Holy Spirit recorded for us in scripture is Jesus telling us to actively pray, forgive me my sin. Okay, which means you have a sin problem, okay? And I can tell you, being a pastor here for however long I've been, um, there's a lot of us who really get the concept of our sin problem. Like, yeah, I'm broken before God. But when you kind of cut us open and you think about the people closest to us, like our spouses or our best friends or our community or our family, whatever it is, what you'll find is that some of us actually have a hard time acknowledging our sin problem. And so like if you're the kind of person where the closest people in your orbit over the last season, the last few years have never heard you say, I'm sorry. Man, I did this wrong. I saw that wrong. My motives were impure. I gave in to the kingdom of self and I made this about me. If that doesn't on the regular, and I'm not saying you have to go blog about it, okay? Or put it on X. I think that's the new Twitter. I'm not saying you have to do that. But what I am saying is that humility looks good on everyone. And what Jesus is telling us is that we have a sin problem and we shouldn't waste a lot of rhetorical time trying to persuade one another to like yield 10% of an argument so that we might actually one time in our life admit that we're wrong. That's a problem. But what we need to do in light of God's grace and humility is own and acknowledge our sin and not everybody else's, yours and mine. Forgive us our debts, Jesus prays, because they're there. And then help us to forgive other people. And this is the gospel worked out. Like in light of what God, I mean, there's, in light of what God has done for us, I am called to forgive. And so if you are walking in ongoing bitterness in your life, if there are people that when they walk in the room or you, you freeze, there are people that you just, especially in the church, that you just go, man, I, there's just something weird between us. 
then what this is saying is that you need to live in the heart of Christianity long enough that you see that whatever that person did to you or maybe did to you is just a picture of who you were before God when he proactively came and forgave you of the worst inside of you. Okay, and so what this means is the gospel frees us up to own our sin, not just conceptually, but in a very real and granular way, and then also should empower us not to be people who like concede, well, I guess I'll forgive you, but who proactively hunt people down and go, it is my joy to forgive you in light of the gospel. Bread, humility, and forgiveness. Last couple things, and then we're done. Okay. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. One of the most encouraging things in our walk with Jesus is the knowledge and awareness that he himself was tempted as we are tempted. That is not an experience unknown to Jesus Christ. He was tempted severely in his wilderness season, 40 days. He was tempted throughout his life. He knows firsthand the temptation of the kingdom of self. He knows that. Yet he was tempted without sin. Praise God. That's how our redemption was accomplished. And so lead us not in temptation is not some kind of weird mystical, hey, God, help me to get away from all temptation so that I can just go, you know, to the hill country and sit outside when the weather finally gives way and just have peace about everything in my life and no challenges. That's not, that's not the prayer. The prayer is I'm going to be tempted actively. I know that. I know my flesh. So lead me, as Jesus says, to not enter into temptation, to not let these temptations have a hold to not let a lizard become a dragon, to not let talons get inside of us, that the things that we're tempted by, to not let that hold sway in our minds. That's the prayer. And it's an active prayer because we are being hunted and because we have things inside of us that are still needing to die. God, I need you to help me because that thing, sin is crouching at your door, Genesis says. And I need to actively every day pray against that thing taking hold of my life. And then deliver us from evil is the last thing that can also be translated. Deliver us from the evil one. I think one of the great, and this is not new to us, C.S. Lewis talked about this 70 years ago. I think one of the great temptations, I'm sorry, one of the great strategies of our time is for us to deny the significance of the evil one at work in our midst. Because we are so secularized and because we are so psychologized, we want to explain away every problem. And I am not a demon hunter, I promise. You know, I don't see a demon in every red stoplight, okay? I'm not that guy, I'm not trying to be that guy. But what I can tell you is that the enemy is real, he prowls like a lion and he hates Jesus Christ. He is actively, adamantly opposed to the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the kingdom of God advancing. And because he hates Jesus, he hates Jesus' church. 
and he will do everything in a subtle and crafty way to bring us down. And I think our great temptation, our great modern sophisticated temptation as a result of our relative affluence and comfort is to deny his ongoing active hostility towards the church, the way that he is actively working in your life and mine to bring us down. And again, I'm not trying to hunt, don't, don't call me over to find a demon at your house, okay? I'm not, not into that, okay? But, but what I am telling you is that he is crafty and part of the challenges of our life are spiritual things at work in dark places. And we have to acknowledge that. You know, it's sophisticated, affluent people who struggle with not seeing the ongoing work uh, of the enemy. Other places in the world, they know he's real. There's no denial of that. But I think our comforts and our peacetime have led us to missing out on what he is actively trying to do to bring sabotage and chaos into the church and into our lives. And part of our ongoing prayer has to be Lead me not into living in temptation, and God, may I not be unwise to the schemes of Satan in my life. May we pray against the evil that he tries to bring, and may you bring relief. And then the last thing, spare us sorrow, as Paul prays. That's a really beautiful thing in your life. When you are overcome by temptation, spiritual darkness, Lord, spare us sorrow in this. Would you spare us sorrow and help us to persevere in light of the gospel, this is the Lord's prayer. And Jesus is so good to give it to us. You know, he says in this passage that we don't have to have long-winded prayers, that we don't have to have showy prayers, but that when we pray, we can pray like this. And you can pray these words or you can pray a pattern of this word in your own rhythm, however that looks. And I would encourage you to do it in light of our, uh, in light of our, our moment at Northway to think about being a church that's really active amongst uh, the city of Dallas for the kingdom of God. Speaking of prayer, let me pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for its integrity. And I pray that you would help us to model Jesus Christ and to pray with great faith and great confidence and great belief um, that you love us as Father and that you have approached us, that we can approach you because of Jesus Christ and that we can exalt you before we bring our burdens to you, and you love us, and you meet us here. So I pray that you would, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.